Welcome to Stories from A to Z with Mona P. I'm your host, Mona Pasanoff. If you are a new listener, you can learn more about me and my process of starting this podcast by listening to Episode 1. Hopefully, you'll notice I've come a long way since I first launched in July. It is easy to subscribe to Stories from A to Z with Mona P., on SoundCloud, or any other podcast platform. By subscribing for free, you will always have quick access to further episodes. Continuing with the Upper Peninsula theme and the folks who live there, I saved this guest to close out the season. Almost everyone who lives at the Hiawatha Sportsman's Club knows Ivan Darling, or Ike, as we call him. Join me today in hearing this wonderfully interesting, intelligent, many-faceted man share his descriptive stories. He's going to take us back in time and bring us right up to the present. In advance, I apologize for the background sounds. The room we recorded in wasn't the best. Do take some time to visit the A to Z with Mona P. Facebook page to see photos of Ike and some of his hobbies. Good morning, Ike. How are you? I'm fine, Mona. Welcome to the podcast show, and today it's all about you. We discussed some questions that I will be asking you, and I'm going to start with what brought you to HSC, or really, what was life like before you arrived here? What did you do previous? can be a short version. I actually started coming up here with my father when I was a small child, actually in the very beginning of the 40s. It was a good place. I could get out. I could do things in the woods. A little later on, I could do my hunting, but back then it was mainly fishing and and doing things outdoors and with my father. Since my parents were split up, it was a chance to be with my dad. So I really enjoyed it up here from the very beginning, and that's why we've always come back. When you went to school, you studied engineering, and you went into the service, into the Army Corps of Engineers. Yes. What made you decide to join them, and what is one of the best memories of something that you worked on during that time? The reason that I chose the Corps of Engineers, of course, was because my studies were in engineering, But also, my older brother served during World War II in the Pacific. And, of course, like most young people, I looked up to my older brother. And so my feeling was, if the Corps of Engineers was good enough for my brother, it's good enough for me. So during that time, what is something that you helped to build or work on? I spent 30 years in the Army 
Corps of Engineers, and we were moved all over the world. I lived in, on four different continents and built so many different projects because the Corps is kind of divided into two major groups. One group deals only with the United States of America and what we call the district engineers that take care of our waterways and take care of our land, lakes, and streams. And then one portion of it is designed basically to serve combat troops in the field when you're fighting. But there's uh, actually a third group that does construction, actually builds things all over the world. But they can only do that in foreign countries. So when we're assisting another nation, we can build all kinds of things. Of course, with their consent and support. I love our service in Europe. We lived and served in both France and Germany. I enjoyed our time in Germany more than any other, and we moved constantly. We went over together, Ruth and I, as a family, and we had government quarters, and after six months, we turned them in, gave them back to the government and said, we don't need them, because I was always being moved from place to place to do a construction job. And doing that, Ruth kind of got tired of being separated. We were stationed at Baumholder uh, on our German tour. I think out of four years, I saw Baumholder probably four or five months. Other than that, we were somewhere else building something. The post commander told my wife, she says, you can't get your housing allowance back. Because in the military, if you're not living on a government facility, you get an allowance towards your housing. And since the government had provided us housing and we chose of our own volition to turn it back in and live on the economy, that was up to us. Well, when you're young officer, you don't have extra money to throw away <laughs> or any military service person that is starting out a military career. The senior officer at Baumholder was a brigadier general in the artillery. Division artillery was stationed there. And so he being the senior officer on the post, my wife went to see him. And of course, he said, I don't run the post, you know. Uh, she saw him three times every week, and he got tired of seeing Ruth. And he finally called up the post commander and said, I don't care what you do, but give this lady her housing allowance back so they can go live on the economy. And from there on, we lived with other German families all over the place and were accepted into the communities. We absolutely loved it. That is wonderful. It
it's evident that Ruth was really strong-minded mm-hmm. and your better half. But you didn't answer my question. Okay. One thing that you really are proud of that you worked on. Uh, well, we did an underground command post in France, an underground depot, supply depot, so just just before. Well, yes, it, for protection from air attack. Uh, the reason for it being underground, part of NATO. We just got it built, and the French decided to go socialist and pulled out of NATO and took over everything that we had built. We built a missile site along the Czechoslovakian border for uh, low-flying aircraft called the Hawk Missile System. We built underground storage facilities for nuclear warheads to go on the Nike Hercules missiles. Oh, one of the comical things, being an electrical engineer at the time, uh, that was before I got my mechanical degree. Most of the work in the Corps of Engineers is civil, but that's all right. They teach you much of civil engineering at Fort Belvoir back then, before they send you overseas. But the one thing that didn't soak in well with me, we were building these huge underground storage facilities that would channel the blast if a missile accidentally went off so in one direction so it would be away from any community and would do the least possible damage if it ever occurred. And these were massive structures with walls over three foot thick, full of steel and concrete. And in order to get them done, on schedule, we were only given one set of forms to pour all of this. And of course, you got to wait for the concrete to set up before you can pull the forms away. So smarty, me, I tell Usakeg, which supplies the materials for construction, that I wanted them to deliver high early cement so that I could pull the forms within a couple days. And move on to the next site because there were multiple sites at this missile site for these. So the first one we poured, it took us like 26 hours nonstop. And when we finished, everybody was exhausted. I sent all the men back to the billets, take a shower and go to bed. And I just got my shower and was ready to turn in when a Jeep driver showed up and said, you needed back at the site right now. Got back there, and here this huge structure that we poured was smoking. I said, oh my gosh. I walked up, touched the form from the outside, and burnt my hand. I said, oh, Lord, the one thing I had forgotten is high early cement because it cures so fast, gives up huge amounts of heat. And concrete is an insulator. So when you got something that's over three foot wide and it's generating huge amounts of heat, the heat can't get out. And it just builds up. I managed to confiscate 
three fire engines, and we spent the next four days, night and day, spraying the forms down with water to cool them off. And when we got done, we pulled our forms off and what was normally reinforced three-quarter inch plywood in the forming was now less than a quarter inch thick. It had all burned up. And so we still had to get new forming and come back. And it, it proved one thing. There's a lot of different engineering fields. And just because you know one doesn't mean you know them all. That is a great story. <laughs> that is a really good story. Thank you for sharing that. We know that you brought Ruth with you over. Uh, how did you meet your wife, Ruth? I hear there's a good story mm. that has to do with a monkey. Yeah, between my junior and senior year in high school, my mother was in Florida taking care of her mother, who was ill at the time. So she had to go down there. So I became somewhat of a bachelor when I was a junior in high school. I lived by myself, took care of myself. However, I was in a small town where I had two older brothers who were married and were close by, and their job was to see to it that I didn't end up in jail. They kind of acted as parents and kept me under control. I had gone to Florida just for a week during the summer to see my mother and grandmother, and I came back with a pet monkey, Kim. And that monkey... Where did uh, the monkey come from, though? How did you wind up with a monkey? I bought it from a pet shop in Florida. But what made you want a monkey? Oh, he was cute. He was a ring-tailed monkey, uh, a wonderful, wonderful critter, but he, he hated men. Apparently, coming from South America to North America by ship, the sailors picked on him. He learned to dislike men. He had no fear whatsoever of women. And he'd jump up in the lady's lap and just sit there, calm as could be, even a person they had never known before. But he was very cautious of men. So for first six months, I had to wear mule-hide gloves to handle him and then got bit a couple hundred times. But he finally got trust me. And then he would ride all over on my shoulder wherever we went. I did a softener route and a milk route, getting the milk and the steel cans to deliver to the processing plant. And the monkey would always ride with me. And I had a light chain and a collar, and I'd tie it off to the emergency brake and he could run around in the cab back and forth and, and go out onto the rearview mirrors. So by local residents, I finally ended up being called the monkey man. I want to tell you a story, because it's probably the most humorous one. There are many things about monkeys. They are uh, 
somewhat agitators. We had a swing set out of pipe in the backyard, so I'd often, when I'm off working, tie him off for the day to that swing set. That way, if a dog or something came around, he could run up the pipe and uh, protect himself. But he absolutely terrorized all the cats in the town because the cats couldn't help themselves and they would they would come over to see what this creature was that they didn't understand and he'd come down the pipe with his tail wrapped around behind him and he'd come down the pipe and get close enough to egg them in and as soon as they got close enough he would jump off the pipe grab the tail of the cat and lift its hind feet up off the ground. And of course, they were clawing with their front feet, trying to get out at his reach, and he could steer them all over the yard. And he'd do that until they're totally terrorized and then let them go. That's a funny story. Poor kitties. We had a store. We were electrical, plumbing, and heating store, but we were also at hardware. On a Saturday, I had to take some of the deliveries to the post office to mail out packages. So he was on my shoulder, and we walked into the post office. I went right over to the window to get my work done. And in the post office was a little boy over in the corner, and he was folding newspapers to take out on his route. And there were a couple other people getting mail out of the boxes, you know. And I didn't pay any attention to that. And Kim jumped down on the floor. And while he was down on the floor, the boy came over and wanted to play with the monkey. Well, the monkey wasn't going to have anything to do with that boy. So he kept backing away and backing away, keeping his eye on that boy and backing off. One of the patrons in the post office was a Mrs. Meter, a beautiful lady, always dressed to the hilt, and she was getting the mail for the bank, her husband ran, and for their own personal use out of the boxes. So she was facing away and didn't even see what was going on. And as the monkey was backing away from the boy, he backed right up to the heel of her high-heeled shoes and then wrapped his tail around her leg, all the way up her leg. I have never heard anyone scream that loud in my whole life. And she left permanent marks on the boxes as she tried to climb to the ceiling. <laughs> oh, I, that's a good one. Thank you for sure. that. Sure. Let's go back to the UP okay. and Hiawatha. Mm-hmm. Uh, you live here full time. Yes. What made you decide to give up your house in the lower part of the state and become a full time? Hiawatha resident in the U.S. After leaving the military, I became a contractor doing industrial-type work for power plants and chemical plants and and, uh, manufacturing plants, that sort of thing. I was confined to a certain area. We served about a four-state area. Once I retired, you could live wherever you wanted. 
And there was no place on this earth that I have seen that I would rather live than right here. The Hiawatha Sportsman Club has everything in the world that I want to do in a lifetime. We have 35,000 acres. We have multiple trout streams, lots of Lake Michigan shoreline, many lakes. We have archery, we have rifle and pistol ranges, we have trap ranges, we have basketball and tennis. We have over 200 miles of trails on our own property for ATVing and cross-country skiing and uh, snowmobiling. This is as close to heaven as you're going to get while you're still on Earth. In fact, when Ruth and I were just courting, a couple times she came up to the Hiawatha Club and stayed for a few days with my father and my stepmother. On one of those trips, we were up on the ridge where the shelter is off of G Trail amongst the birch trees looking out over Lake Michigan. We knew that we were going to get married. And we both decided that if we lived long enough, this was where we were going to come. So we knew before we ever got married that we were going to end up here. Wow. Wow. That's pretty incredible. How many years have you lived here? When Full did you, time? Yes. Um, We've lived here about 17 years full-time. What was the final decision of this is it, we're going up, we're staying through the winter, we're going to sell our house? When we decided to retire, actually I retired twice. My first company I retired from when I was in my mid-50s. And we moved up here. Every day I'd go out fishing in the morning. One day I came back in and all my bags were packed. Everything was sitting in the middle of the living room. And I said, what's going on? Where are we going? And she says, you're going back to where we came from, back to the Toledo area in Ohio. And you're going back to work. She says, I cannot stand you. When you're retired, she says, you're wearing holes in the floor, pacing. And she says, let's save our marriage and you go back to work. So I started another company and uh, we stayed longer. I did not actually retire until I was like 69 because I enjoyed what I was doing. Once we got up here, that was it. We had already built the house. It wasn't quite finished, but it was, it was pretty well near finished. And I've taken the tack that the day I finish the last stick on that house will probably be the day I die. So we leave something to work on. I like that. That's good. Yes. Oh, something. I need to tell you about the Hiawatha Club. This is one of the interesting things, too, is back when I was still going to college, 
part of the time I lived up here with my father, but part of the time because of getting experience in my trade, I was living somewhere else. On a weekend, we came up with, at that time I was, was going with another girl and her younger brother and her grandpa came up here with me and we came up for the weekend to go fishing. So we came up and went fishing, and this was back in the days when we had the dining hall in the woods back near the Payne Lodge. On Saturday night, they had dances for the teenagers. They didn't have live bands, but there was a record player, and they'd have snacks, and the kids, there wasn't a whole lot of entertainment in the old days. You know, every Sunday there was a baseball game. Up here, every little community had its own baseball team. And Sunday afternoon was baseball, universally. Everybody was at the baseball field. At night, there wasn't much to do unless you went to a bar. And that wasn't appropriate for young people. It was difficult for the kids um, uh, to have a place to get together. So it was nice to have these dances up here. The grandfather, in his younger days, he had spent eight years in vaudeville, entertaining and traveling the whole country. So when we got to the dance, at the end of the hall, we had a small stage, but all the boys were lined up on one side of the room talking. All the girls were lined up at the other side giggling and talking. And in the middle, there was nothing. So when we came in, he said, this is not going to work. So he went in the kitchen and grabbed a couple big serving spoons went outside, grabbed a handful of sand, and jumped up on the stage, spread the stand around, and while the music was playing, he started doing a soft shoe and a little tap dancing. And, of course, that just drew the kids right to the stage. And he was playing the spoons on his leg and singing along and just, just having a great time, and the kids loved it. So once he got their attention, he went down and he started grabbing them. One girl, one boy, and putting them together, getting them to dance. Two-thirds of the boys didn't have the foggiest idea how to dance, but he'd show them a couple steps and get them started. And then he grabbed two more, and he kept marrying them up. And when he got done, 90% of the kids were on the floor dancing and having a great time. It was just wonderful. I haven't ever heard anyone tell a story, first of all, that took place at the dining hall because it burned. Been gone for a long time. time. And that you were there. You probably have lots more stories, and that'll have to be part two. We'll do that next summer. (laughs) Uh, But thank you for sharing that. What a great piece of HSC history. Let's talk a little bit about the... Craftsman Building. Can you tell us what was your inspiration for starting a Craftsman Building, what it is, 
and what it offers to the members. When we were up here full time, I started getting involved in all these committees, especially the Fish and Game Committee and the House Building and Grounds Committee. At that time, the House Building and Grounds Committee had voted on and passed a resolution to tear down the old maintenance shop, which was an old wooden building behind painting place next to the lake in the area where the old ice house used to be. This was the original maintenance shop when the club was first formed. At that time, it was only being used to store junk and things from the past that they probably would never reuse anyhow. And so it was, it was kind of being wasted. It wasn't, wasn't being used anyhow. Back then, closing on 80, 90 years old, they just decided, let's tear it down and open up the view to the lake a little more. I was opposed to it, but of course they had to present it to the board and get the board approval to bring it down. I decided to run for Board of Governors. And as soon as I was elected on the Board of Governors, I asked to be able to take over the House Building and Grounds Committee. I fired everybody that was on the House Building and Grounds Committee and put all new people, mostly people who were either contractors or somehow involved in uh, building codes and that sort of thing, rather than just buddies. The first thing we did was reverse that vote, that that building was not going to be touched. Then we got together with Mrs. Glasscock, and we created all the paperwork and filed it with the state to make it a historic building, knowing that once that was done, it would be impossible for them to tear it down. And the whole purpose was to clean the place up and put all kinds of woodworking tools in that shop and make it a place for the members to come and work on projects and help with their hobbies. And those that didn't have hobbies, we'd teach them. That was really the basis that we started putting the craftsmen together. It was to provide a service you can't be out fishing and doing all those wonderful things at, at the range and anywhere else when it's storming outside. But when you're up here in the summer, and you may be up for just a few days, if it's storming outside, you can go inside and work on a project. And you can learn something, because not everybody is, is really trained to use their hands. So this is a good time to do that. And that's the whole purpose of the Craftsman Building. It's a wonderful building, and I am fortunate to have been under your tutelage oh. to <laughs> create some things. And you do, like every summer, COVID an exception, you help the kids make birdhouses or some kind of activity. We always have a project yes. for the kids. Yeah. We have to do a little planning and work in advance so that the pieces are cut out and so that it's something they can get done in one day without having to be there for weeks on end. And besides, 
with the young kids, they shouldn't be running power tools anyhow. It's a wonderful testament to you. And I didn't know that you started it until fairly recently when we were talking. I really hope that it continues because it has state-of-the-art equipment and you could do just about anything you want with what's in there. Well, the Hiawatha Club has only $5,000 invested in bringing that building back up to shape, which was the exact cost that they had estimated to tear it down. The Historical Society made a contribution to bringing your building back, and the rest of it came out of my pocket. I have a big investment in that building, and I just hope to gods that it stays active in, in the future. I hope so, too. And it's really one of the club's best-kept secrets, and it's not a secret, but it's interesting that more people don't take advantage of it. I've enjoyed everything that I have done while I've been there and worked with you and created. So thank you. What is it about wood that you love? Why do you mm. like working with wood? My brothers and I were sort of brought up that way. My father started his business in 1927 as an electrical contractor, self-taught, self-trained. He was a farmer like most everybody else was back in that era, you know, prior to World War II, when they first started bringing the power lines out into the countryside. He went and got books and read up on uh, electricity and wiring, and he wired his barn and his house, and he was the first one in the region to have electricity in both his house and barn. So all of his neighbors then started wanting him to do it for them, and the next thing you knew, he had to hire a hired man to take care of the farm because he was too busy doing the electrical work. He taught us that you shouldn't oversee others doing construction work that you haven't physically done yourself. If you're going to tell someone else what to do, you better know what you're doing. We were taught to pour concrete and lay blocks and bricks and stone and do carpentry work. He always said, if you want something done, the best thing to do is do it yourself. And so that's how we built our home up here. I had to get somebody to come in and pour the foundations and do the subgrade work. I got a local contractor to build the shell. And after that, we finished it ourselves, working on it on long weekends. I always loved beautiful woodwork and beautiful furniture. And it's surprising. If you really want something, it feels so much better and you, it's so much more valued if you've done it yourself. It's yours. It has your claim. And I love to do wood carvings, carving fish and wildlife and whatever else. Do you have some of those at home? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They're all around. Thank you for that. Now we're going to talk about Another interest of yours and how I've gotten to know you a little bit better is on Tuesday nights in Curtis, 
we go to 3D archery. Yes, we do. And it is in a beautiful place, a forest. We love it. And I just recently found out that you were instrumental in also helping to create that locale and building. And can you speak to that a little bit? How well, you came to archery and... There's, uh, there's always been a few people here in the Hiawatha Club that are interested in archery. We do have actually three outdoor and one indoor range here at the Hiawatha Club for archery. But uh, there was an area-wide group of fellows, girls, who enjoyed archery and had an archery club. We called ourselves East Central Upper Peninsula Archery Association. And they had several locations that they had built up so that they could shoot the year round. So they had an enclosed building for shooting in the wintertime. And each of those got compromised one way or another. When we got up here full time, it, at that time was not an operation. We got a bunch of the fellows together, and one of our members who had a beautiful woodlot next to his home said that he would be willing to set aside a couple acres for a building to be built for an indoor range and give us use of his woods for an outdoor range. We bought the property from him. Of course, he is very instrumental in keeping that group together. Three or four of us got together and sponsored a bank loan and bought the materials and with our own labor put a nice, nice indoor facility together and a place to store our targets and all the materials and things that we need to run the club. Tom was so gracious to allow us to take over a big piece of his property and use it forever. And it's a it's a wonderful group. And now we have people for 30, 40 miles in every direction that belong to that archery association. And we shoot the year round. There are those that shoot compound bows and they have certain nights to shoot. If you're a member, you can come in and shoot at any time. That is not a activity going. And of course, there are those of us who are traditionalists who use the longbow or recurves and do it the old-fashioned way. And Tuesdays are our day to do whatever we wish. And so we do that the year-round. Uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful sport, especially when the traditional way. When you're doing it, it it's your skill, and we have everything from little kids that are probably 30 inches tall to people in their 80s and 90s that are shooting archery. Our Tuesday nights at the range are one of the most fun things of being in the UP in the summer. I want to ask if there's anything left on your bucket list, like something that you always wanted to do that you haven't quite yet being that I'm in my mid-80s now, 
uh, you never know how much more time you've got. In fact, it's a wonder that you've had this much time. There's still one thing that I am involved in is with the American Legion, we're trying to start a youth marksmanship club, which is based exactly on and follows the same rules, methods, and equipment as the Olympics. And we're trying to get an indoor range set up, get the kids organized so it's sustainable. We have so many youth here in the UP, both male and female, that are well-equipped and interested in marksmanship. Uh, They're hunters. There's probably as many female deer hunters up here as there are boys out there. And, of course, their equipment is a little expensive uh, when you get into Olympic-style equipment. And these are air rifles, not powdered equipment. There still is, of course, a 22 caliber marksmanship that's for youth in the uh, Olympic organization, but there's air rifles have become so much more a standard. They're charged by oxygen tanks that are used for deep sea diving. They are extremely accurate, but they shoot a BB-sized pellet. With the degree of accuracy that they provide, these are rifles that are in the $800 to $1,000 a piece category. So it's an expensive thing to get started, but if we get started and the kids work on projects during the summer to earn money towards working off the debt, we'll get it done. And we would already be doing it, except the covert just kind of stopped everything in its tracks. And until it gets solved, we're not going to move on. Where is that taking place? Is that here at the club, or is it in a local town nearby? Well, we're actually going to set up a range in the Legion building, which is in Ingadine. It's actually called the Veterans Hall. Originally, it was a township provided the space. The building was built. It was uh, controlled by the VFW. Our VFW finally uh, aged out and had to be disbanded eventually. But the American Legion has continued it on. And so we're going to set it up so that uh, the equipment can be set up and taken down easily, moved into immediate storage. That's going to be our site. We'll be working with schools throughout the area, and those kids who are self-taught, taught by their parents, are also welcome. That's a wonderful endeavor, Ike. I really hope it is seen through, and you know, once the COVID thing gets handled and we get back to living life, what a great dream. Good luck, mm-hmm. yes. Anything else you would like us to know? Oh, well, there's much to know. I mean, everyone's life is different. Everyone has their, the things that meant the most to them and the things that they accomplished and the things that they worked on and didn't quite work out. So 
we're, uh, we're all unique and all have our own stories to tell. There you go. One little tidbit. Okay. Uh, having to do with the Hiawatha Club is that our home on the Hiawatha Club sets out on Chase's Point, which sticks out into Lake Millicokan. But our home and our guest house, which was my father's home, are not part of the Hiawatha Club because they're part of a piece of land that uh, was privately owned before the club was dreamed of. And it was kind of unique as to how it fell into our family. My father used to come up here fishing years ago, back when there wasn't even a road to get here. So the only way they could get here is by train. And my father had a friend of his, and they would come up and leave their cars in Mackinac City and take the ferry across. And then they would ride a boxcar. They'd have an open boxcar with benches in it. And you could throw your gear into that boxcar, climb up into it, sit on a bench, and you would first tell the engineer what mile marker you wanted them to stop and let you off. And they'd let you off at the railroad tracks, and then you'd backpack in here to Lake Millicokan. And my father and his buddy would fish. They just loved it. They were both fishermen, and they both were electrical people. They, the electrical trades what brought them together. My father's friend was some 35, 40 years older than he was. So when he passed away, he had no close family. In his will, he left this property on Chase's Point to my father with a stipulation that my father had to sign this contract. The contract stipulated that he was required to bring Mady Brown up here fishing for a week every summer for as long as she lived. That was the old boy's girlfriend. They had gone together for over 27 years they were both independent people, had their own homes. They never had lived together, but wherever they went, they were together. That's how we got to be part of the Hiawatha Sportsman's Club. Wow, I don't think anyone knows that story. But wait, so does that mean you don't pay high, you're not like on a tier one or tier two no. or no dues? and. No, we do have, have property in the Hiawatha Club, but our homes are not. Wow. That's, uh, yeah. Are you the only ones? I think so at this time. There were a couple others, but they have all put their property into the club over the years. We found no really need or necessity to do that since we already had memberships. Tradition became part of the Hiawatha Club. And you have one daughter who started living here a few years ago mm -hmm. first, and then now your second daughter is also living here. Our entire family is here at the Hiawatha Sportsman's Club. Never thought that would happen, 
but it did. That's, that's a testament to you and Ruth and how wonderful you are. All right, Ike, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it, and people are going to love hearing about you. Okay. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. This concludes the UP episodes for this year. I will be transitioning to local Tampa area folks and their stories for the next few months. The next episode will be available two weeks from today, usually on a Monday. If you are interested in sharing a bit of your life through this podcast, contact me to discuss the possibility. Even Ike said it, everyone has a story to share. Feel free to leave questions or comments about the podcast on the site that you use to listen to Facebook page. As always, I would appreciate your sharing this podcast with your friends and family. And of course, if you like it, please give me a thumbs up on the podcast page. Till next time. This is Stories from A to Z with Mona P.